You're listening to The Nerve, an English at WIT podcast. Today, I'm chatting to the writer of the novel Iron Annie, Luke Cassidy. The adaptation of the novel, The Iron Annie Cabaret, is currently on a national theatre tour. You can book tickets at junctiorearts.ie or you can find them at Iron Annie Cabaret on Instagram. Iron Annie is Luke's debut novel, but he has also just published a short story. I'm not allowed to call him a short story writer, he tells me. (laughs) So, Luke, um, Iron Annie is your first novel, but I presume, obviously, not your first attempt at writing. So have you always written and how did you fare in the publication game up until now? How did you find it? Yeah, I am. I suppose it's it's an interesting one because I I think when a when a writer sort of appears on the scene with a with something like a novel and feels like a a very finished work that uh, it can be very daunting when you're when you're trying if you're trying to get into writing, which uh, perhaps some people listening to this might be. Um, I think the main thing that I always had in mind was that I, I didn't I was never interested personally in in doing like. Um, masters in creative writing not that that's not a legitimate path and the people aren't doing great things with that it just didn't ever appeal to me but the writing thing was always in the back of my head to do I I, I did all kinds of I would say uh, fancy types of procrastination you know uh, living abroad and I I did a doctorate along the way that that was very enriching intellectually and and so on but has absolutely nothing to do with um I think that was my satnav. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> we do, we must mention that you did have a bit of trouble getting here. <laughs> yeah, you know. It's, uh, <laughs> the satnav is still oh yeah, going. Oh yeah. No, she's just, there we go. Oh, good. Oh, good. Yeah, no, it, it definitely wasn't the first thing that I wrote, but it was the first thing that after writing it, I felt, okay, this has legs. I can, I can go forward with that. And that was in end of 2018. And then I, I approached uh, actually... I had met an agent on a on a kind of a workshop, Brian Langan, uh, an Irishman, who offered to represent me, and that was basically the start of it. And that process then um, went on just as 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 the um, it it went on into the beginning of the of the pandemic, which obviously then put a put a big pause button on the whole thing and it wasn't until um what august 2020 that things were starting to normalize out again and i got um a two-book deal with bloomsbury followed immediately by vintage in in north america or, or publishing in north america so that's actually i just received the um the proofs, or as they call them in the States, the galleys of uh, Arnani for the North American edition. It's quite exciting just to see that. You're know, like, oh, it just feels like yesterday that the, the Bloomsbury ones arrived. And now, yeah, it's That's cool. very it's, exciting. Yeah, it's really it? exciting. It's and really you, exciting. you mentioned that you went off and did a PhD. And that PhD, like, I have to mention this because this is, when I read this, I went, wow. Uh, you went and did a PhD in cult- cultural anthropology in the Sorbonne. Yeah. Yeah, as you do. Why not? I was there. (laughs) How did you end up doing that? And then also, do you think that that had anything to do with your return to Dundalk and writing this story and the observation of the people there? Um, 
not sure. I, I, I can't say that anything in my life has really been a, a very direct progression to one, from one thing to another. Just to give you an example, I was living in, Par- in, in Japan uh, prior to moving to Paris. And it, the reason that I found myself living in Paris was that I travelled back over land. Uh, the goal was just to get back to Ireland without taking a plane from Japan. It's not so straightforward a thing to do. Obviously, I, 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 I like making life complicated but you get a lot of interesting material that way and observation then I ended up in Paris where I already had friends from uh, an Erasmus I did uh, a couple of years before that and they sort of encouraged me and and, and facilitated me and and, and kind of helped me to find bits of freelance work and, and then you know I was introduced to my um, thesis director uh, at, the, at the Sorbonne and and he very amicably, you know, kind of took me under his wing, and then I was lucky enough to get funded. So that was my. It, it was a. It was a, you know, a anthropology of of narrative. Really, I would say narrative and and memory. I was studying kind of like how people use um, storytelling to kind of create a common story about the past, and and this was sort of my way of kind of procrastinating around the fact that I wanted to write fiction I was like yeah no if I can just figure this out I don't know that that was entirely necessary though I definitely won't advocate this to anybody listening because (laughs) it's really you you don't need to do that (laughs) that's brilliant though isn't it it's a fantastic route Um, and so you came back to Dundalk then and I read that you know unlike many others who return home after being away you were kind of quite happy to be there and found it to be maybe just as interesting or more interesting a place than when you left. Yeah, I, I suppose I should say that I was still spending a lot of time um, in those years. I was still spending a lot of time on the continent uh, and I would return to Ireland for for freelance work and, and base myself out of Dundalk. And what I found was, you know, in, in the town... Um, was a great openness and a great uh, sort of sense of um, it's okay to experiment, it's okay to try new things. Whereas in a place like Paris, where you know it's you, you can't really compare Paris and Dundalk, obviously, but you know you have this sense though from people who are doing anything in in the cultural sphere or in the arts or in academia, even that that everything's already been done. All the questions are already answered and all you can do is be derivative on something that some dude invariably has done in the 19th century. Uh, and it's not very interesting after a certain point. And it, it, it can be, it, I found that sort of quite stifling. Um, and so that was one of the reasons, though, whilst I really loved living in Paris, it, 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 I needed out. At a certain point, I needed I needed kind of a breath of fresh air, and ironically enough, I did get that in Dundalk, my hometown. Which, when I was sixteen, I was you know I was running away from um, quite effectively. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And so, tell us a little bit about the novel about Iron Annie and and how that idea came to you and and how you came to write that because it it is very much rooted in the town, and I know. That's what you call it, isn't it? The town. The town. The town. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which I and I'll I'll, I'll read a bit in in a, in a bit, so you'll get get a sense of that of how it's rooted in this vernacular that is specific to the to the region. Um, really, I mean the sort of border uh, region on the northeast. Um, 
how did that process start? I was actually sort of doing a, 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 a workshop in experimental fiction um, in Scotland with uh, Jenny Fagan and Niall Griffiths, um, two British writers. And, and I discovered a kind of a method of, of, of um, spontaneous free writing just from a, a prompt. And then that uh, opened up for me actually in, in one 15 minute session we wrote kind of everyone was writing a different thing and I wrote in vernacular for the first time I pre it wasn't premeditated at all and I just I just went at it and very quickly found myself with a page of stuff and I was just like what the hell is that and and and, uh, and I that's still the page that's the first page in the book and um, yeah so then everything flew flowed from that and so if you ask what the novel's about, it's, a, it's about Eve, it's about this character who's the protagonist and, and the sort of storyteller, her voice and her story, which is sort of simultaneously kind of Aoife is this uh, kind of small town figure. Uh, she's a big figure in a small town um, underworld kind of, she's a, she's a, she, as she would think of herself as, a, as what we call a wheeler dealer, who's just someone who would you know, uh, they would they would just deal in whatever is going at the time. So she sort of boosts counterfeit cigarettes or or or, uh, or vodka. That's her kind of mainstay. Is sort of like legally distilled vodka from villages on the border, which then she is sort of selling. But she also does sell drugs and things, and that's where the trouble arises in the in the novel is when she agrees to go on a trip to uh, sell 10 kilos of cocaine and brings along her partner, uh, girlfriend, non-monogamous trouble source, um, Annie, who is of the title, quite a, a problematic figure in, 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 in her life. And the whole story of the, of, of the cabaret, because I didn't want to just sort of uh, try and squeeze everything into, 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 a two-hour show, you know, it's not possible. So I, I, I kind of really honed in on the story of their, um, let's say their, their, their mutual uh, seduction and the strangeness of it, uh, which is, you know, the strangeness of any seduction, really, you know, I would say. And is the Iron Annie the fact that she's kind of hardened, but also the fact that she's this kind of magnetic character is there is there a kind of a double meaning in that one or yeah you know uh, it's, it's interesting it's just it's a kind of a world in which um not to sort of overstate my the, the my privileged knowledge into that world but it's the kind of world in which nicknames are kind of a thing you know and people will give each other nicknames and it's it, it might sound a little bit funny that you know you have a character walking around in this world called the rat king and that's really what people call them, you know, or or stripes is another guy when he gets his comeuppance. But um, you know, it's just a nickname that's given to her by actually the racking when she is sort of it's sort of an insight into her character. I don't want to spoil it um exactly. It's just a it's a it's a it's an episode of the book when she kind of gets that nickname. But it's not necessarily because of her hardness, although she has that. And it's not necessarily because of her magnetism, though she has that. There's, Yeah, I've, I've had a couple of interesting uh, questions about that name and about about her and whether this has something to do, you know, with Northern Ireland, 
where she's from, you know, plays a big role, that that whole border dimension as well. But, you know, certainly consciously at, at the moment of writing, I just try to be as unconscious as possible and let the flow work. It's magic. And, and uh, in terms of the border position of the, the novel as well, I mean, obviously a lot of this is created by you, but do, have you seen those kinds of wheelers and dealers you know, growing up, did you know of people who were hustling across the border and stuff like that? Uh, it was fairly impossible to be ignorant <laughs> of it, you know, um, whether you wanted to be or not. And it was just a question of how how far away could you could you keep yourself from it. But it was going on. I mean, it's still going on. You know, um, this is this is the thing. And I think that, um, you know, like uh, Dundalk would have a lot of the same issues as any, you know, medium sized town in Ireland. Um, Waterford's a city, though, isn't it? So, it you know, is a city. Oh, it is a city. I don't yes, know what people the people forget. Yeah, no, it's it's a funny <laughs> one, that isn't it? But I don't I don't know what the size of the population is. It feels about the same to me. Yeah. But but um, but I you know like a lot of the problems around drugs and 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 sort of um, violence and the and the things that flow from that. But they're just sort of a little bit dialed up. Because of the, I, I would say, various things to do with the legacy of the Troubles, you know, and also just the the opportunities that the border has historically presented for criminals, you know, um, the criminal element. And, and, and at the same time, myself, I can't bring myself to be, and I, I, I'm not in the book either, it's not um, condemning. I mean, it's from Aoife's perspective and she sees nothing wrong with any of this. It's, it's, and, and that's not me uh, having a position, it's just uh, it is it is reflective of an attitude, where if you imagine, you know, you have a place, a, a territory in which, from one day to another, uh, a border is basically imposed, cutting off families, cutting off, you know, and that was a hundred years ago, but the repercussions of that are still very much, very much with us, you know, because of everything that's happened in those times, and and I think that like two of the Two of the main elements of the book, um, which are really drawn from that, are the are the humor and the kind of like the sort of sense of illicit license. I would say this kind of thing that, you know, if you can take advantage of it of that to get by, do it. And it's it's just a little bit more. Uh, I would say in that region generally, it's a little bit more present than elsewhere in Ireland. And this is as I would as I've come to see it, it's sort of like a natural enough response to kind of surviving under a little bit more difficult circumstances than other people had to deal with. You know, like smuggling, for example. You know, everyone around that region has has a story of smuggling from their families, from their, you know, personal personal involvement in that, whether it was, you know, sitting and usually th- very innocuous things like everyone has a story of, yeah, we would we would drive back and forth to, to school. And as a we, you know, you'd be talking to somebody in a pub and as a, as a, as a little girl when when they were uh, a little girl, you know, 30, 40 years ago, let's say someone would be telling you the story that they'd be sat on top of boxes of eggs so that the police wouldn't bother them. Or the customs went, wouldn't bother them, so that they, because the eggs were cheaper on one side, and at one time, <laughs> this traffic in eggs, you know, it's very, it's very tame compared to what's going on in the book, mind you. Yeah, and 
How come, I suppose, you know, and this is, I don't know if this is just a a proper question, really, but just an observation. But, you know, you have two female characters at the heart of this kind of debut novel. Is this just, did her voice just speak to you? Did you just say, oh, I don't know, this is just, this is a woman. I don't know why I am writing this woman, but this is the woman at the centre of this. Or was it a conscious decision to say, you know, I'm going to make two protagonists, two female protagonists. Yeah, it, it definitely wasn't a conscious decision. Um, my friend and and, 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 and colleague, um, Neve Campbell, the author, you, I'm sure you, you know her, she, we, we've done a couple of events together since the publication of the book and she, in the last one, she called it a, a, a beautiful act of uh, literary cross-dressing, which sort of, I found that funny enough. Um, but Basically, no, I, I, I didn't intend to do that. It was just the voice. And I started, you know, following that voice. And very quickly, I realized that, oh, this is this is definitely a woman. Um, and then I had to sort of just dig into that and, and keep following it. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad just to say that it's been received very well by women. So that's good. Um, you know, uh, but I think that, uh, like, as I was writing, I was obviously very conscious of the context and the time that we're living in and and, and kind of checked myself a lot and, and had a lot of, you know, very um, writerly, very intelligent, very uh, astute uh, female readers helped to guide me through that process, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think what what's seems to be the case is that you kind of seem to follow whatever the universe is telling you to do, um, whether it be in your life or in your writing. And so this maybe is another example of that. Yeah, yeah. No, that's uh, interesting. You know, we only met five minutes ago and you, you got my number. <laughs> um, so I suppose if you were to, I mean, I, I think it's amazing then that you wrote this debut novel you know, you have great success with this and getting it published and everything. And then you decide, well, what will I do now? Wow, I think I'll transfer it onto the stage. <laughs> <laughs> so what on earth made you think that that would be an easy thing to do? <laughs> I never thought it would be an easy thing to <laughs> well, do. I did, yeah, no. well, I suppose an interesting thing. Why, why did you decide to do it? So one thing, as I, as I, as I mentioned, that really inspired me in the process was this sort of... Uh, um, Kind of spirit of openness and 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 willingness to experiment and adventure and play with things in the in the um, in the in the context that I found myself in Dundalk, returning to Dundalk and and all of that, um, and mostly I found that in the in the kind of music scene because it, it you know I, it has a great music scene. I haven't met oh no that's not true. I've met one other novelist from Dundalk but who lives in the UK a man called no I can't think of his name anyway <laughs> um, but I, I, you know it's it's not a, a literary place in that sense so I was mainly kind of like in that scene um, and, and that was very much part of what inspired me the kind of the, this sort of openness and spirit as I said and then when when, when it came to launching the book like how, how this idea started off it was meant to be one event 
it's meant to be one event and uh and then it just kind of it took on its own life and it grew legs i i pitched it to a couple of theaters around the region and it was very um, warmly received as an idea and supported and i then um applied for funding from the arts council which i didn't get uh it was a literature project award and uh but the response from the theaters was so strong that I then, you know, I wasn't dismayed. This was during lockdown, uh, but this time last year. And then in January, I, I applied again with a much bigger application, actually much more asking for much more money with many more theatres. And, you know, lo and behold, they came through because as well, in the meantime, I'd done my homework and I'd sort of figured out kind of what, what was missing from the last one. And then, yeah, so I got the, the, the touring award, um, uh, for 12 theatres but it's since grown even more so we're, we have 19 theatres in, in two legs hoping to get a few bit bits more funding as well <laughs> to support that but we did get some from uh, the publishers and from the Louth County Council as well so, so we'll, we'll make it through one way or another. Yeah and you injected the term cabaret into the title then so it became something else didn't it? It, it You know you couldn't yeah. very well I suppose, as you said before, transpose it onto the stage in, to, you know, being faithful to the novel as it was, I, I guess. And so how did you decide to introduce that musical element that you were talking about? Um, I think it, it was, as I say, it was very natural in the sense that I have a lot of friends from that, that scene. And, and once I knew that this was going to happen, once we had the funding coming through, I, I, I simply kind of invited their participation. I said, I'm, I'm going to write a script for this. I want there to be music. I, I don't want it to be a musical as such. So you, you can think of it as a piece of theatre in which lots of really cool live music is happening. So we've got a punk band called False Slag and a folk duo called the Dandelion Few who took the, uh, took the, the book and, and read it. And I sort of briefed them just go with the, the feelings that are in this and, and, and give me five songs that kind of reflect the, um, the, the, the emotional spectrum, you know, which is quite, quite broad in the book. And then we'll kind of co-create the structure of it. And I just devised a script from that, recruited the actor, recruited the director and uh, got things on the go. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And did you want to have any kind of control over the songs that they they were going to, like what if you hated one of the songs, for example, was there, uh, you know, were you able to negotiate about what mm. you would like? Or No, well, I didn't want, I didn't want to um, impose anything like that. No, and I, and, and I, uh, I, I didn't uh, hate any of the stuff at all. It was all brilliant as far as I was concerned. Really, really good. Yeah. And so I presume then, what would you like to go down this route again? I mean, would you like to write more for the stage? Absolutely. Um, I, I'm I'm very interested in you know writing in all different kinds of forms, um, whether in kind of a traditional theatre sense. I'd like to do that as well, although this isn't that obviously with the with the music and 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 everything. Um, I'm also in the process, I should say, of adapting the novel uh, for a screenplay for World Productions, who optioned it last year at the um, actually in January, uh, so early this year. Um, they're the guys who made like um, 
bodyguard and, and line of duty and things like this. So actually it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a, uh, they're, I think, I think that they're using this to kind of bring themselves in an interesting different direction, which is, which is really cool. Wow. That's very exciting. It's great to be part of that. Yeah. Absolutely. And so you have um, an excerpt there. Would mm-hmm. you are, do you does, do you need to go into character now and get your Dundalk <laughs> accent on? A wee bit. Yeah. Um, I, not, I, I, you know, I always sort of say, you know, it's not I, there's no need to be over the top. I, 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 I think that writing itself is the performance for me. And then I leave it to other performers to actually perform, you know, because they're better at it. Great. And do you need to give us any context then around Absolutely, this part? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So this is an episode, this is the first page of an episode called The Chicken and the Moth, which is sort of an early enough episode in, in, in the book. It also appears in the in the stage show, um, in which sort of Aoife is, is at an early point of like strong anxiety about her relationship with... Um, with Annie and she's trying to just unpack that and this is this first sort of like her each 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 episode is a kind of a, a, a recollection really um, on the part of Aoife into sort of what happened with this whole thing you know she's sort of trying to piece it together uh, post festum if you like anyway so this is the chicken and the moth getting to know Annie was like well you know yon book, the paraffin who pushes the big rock up the hill again and again, getting nowhere every time he got somewhere, spilling over the edge into nothing. Like a chicken scratching at that same patch of dirt, all bewildered by the mere fact of being a chicken. Just scratch, scratch, scratch until the urge comes over to you to lay a fucking egg, and even that you don't know a fuck why you're doing it. Like the mutt going round and round the lamp that's left on, just smashing into it and brushing and burning all night until it dies. For a full year, me mind was just a stupid scratchy chicken, a kamikaze mott, scratching and bumping and burning round Annie. And I used to think of her every day, several times a day, used to consume me, used to be all I thought about, sitting there scratching me hands far past blood and feeling sorry for myself. Pure waste of time though. Annie, she wasted everyone's time but in a way where you were mostly happy to have it wasted. Mostly. Great. So I can, yeah, you can feel the theatricality of that coming off the page, can't you really? So it must have been a natural progression in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think uh, I, I, I should be humble, right? So I should say, oh, thank you very much. Yeah, no, that's, <laughs> uh, it, it certainly wasn't in, uh, intentional, but I'm glad it turned out that way. You know. Yeah. And, and when it came time to find the perfect Aoife, um, how did you go about that process? Well, I, I, I would say, you know, I actually didn't have to look that far or hard because I, I had someone in mind for who was a, a, an actor friend, Eleanor McLaughlin, and she sort of was quite involved in, in, in the process of sort of helping me to try and figure out how do I get this over the over the line for the arts council to fund it, she she gave a lot of very important input at that at that point, and then and then later on, you know, uh, she did the audiobook, the Bloomsbury audiobook. Um, I believe Random House are doing a different one. Uh, actually, they haven't asked me anything about that at all. I guess I should uh, put that maybe, on your to do list. Maybe yeah, I have it on about this long. Um, <laughs> 
but yeah, no, I, 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 um, it, it, it kind of, again, emerged very organically and, and she was very committed to the project and into the role. So it sort of almost as a partnership kind of developed that way. It was really, uh, nice. That's incredible. And did did the the person directing then, again, was that a kind of a natural, Mm. a natural connection? Absolutely. Absolutely. So the whole thing, as I say, kind of came together quite organically in in that sense. But so Peter, Peter Morton, um, the director, sort of was brought into it in in that same way, uh, 100%. But I'm delighted with the result. Yeah, it's great. And it sounds like something because it came together so naturally, just, you know, it, you, you can almost say, wow, that this was just meant to be. You know what I mean? It's just supposed to be this way. Yeah. Um, in terms of kind of future writing projects, have you got a few other things on the go now that you're that you're in the process of writing? Yeah, well, I'm working primarily at the minute on the um, on the follow up to Iron Annie. I'm working as well on the um, the screenplay. Uh, it's a little bit hard to find work, to find time to work on those things at the minute with the with with the with the tour. But I mean, I I'm supposed to deliver the manuscript of the next book by first of January. So uh, <laughs> wish me luck. You know, you it's going to be an intense December as well. Yes, yeah, you're going to for Christmas. You're going to be writing all the time. Yeah. It sounds like. Yeah. Um, and when does the tour finish up? So this leg of the tour is up on the 26th of November. Um, but then we have a second leg in March next year when we'll be hitting sort of uh, Dublin, Belfast and Cork and a couple of other venues as well. Um, it's been it's been a bit of a tricky time with, with, with the El Kiova and uh, people are, you know, understandably reticent, some of them, to get back into theatres and, you know, there's a lot of... Uh, anxiety around that so we're just sort of trying to be sensitive to it and 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 it's also very different i think it's interesting in, in, in pl- from place to place how how theaters have really sort of engaged again with their with their audiences after a long period of having nothing you know so uh Hope for a decent turnout tonight and a good show in Waterford. Hopefully yes. it will be good to us. And so I presume it's, it's so it's kind of smaller venues now and then bigger venues later. Is that the plan? Well, I hardly would call the Waterford Theatre Royale a small venue. But, Not a small, uh, but you know, I mean, is it is that what, what the thinking was behind it then? Maybe No, or? the thinking was really just that um, the sort of, sort of like the capital venues in a sense like Cork, uh, fancies itself as a capital. I'm not sure. Yeah, why, you better be you know, careful now. We're we're sensitive about this stuff down in Watford, you know. Uh, really? God. <laughs> I, I, but they do, you know. They, I, I, it's a, it's a funny one. I, I've been down there a couple of times recently, and I really, I thought that was just a joke. But no, they they they're dead deadly serious. Uh, and that's grand. Okay, we'll call it a capital. It'll be there with Belfast and and Dublin. You know, yeah. so th- why not? We can have three capitals on the. We should do that island. down here, yeah. I think, and then Absolutely. and then people. If we just if we just act like we're a capital, then people will treat us like we're a capital. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, the dubs won't. But the know, dubs won't. No. To hell with them. Not a not a hope in hell. Well, look, have a, I hope the tour goes really really well, and that you achieve great success with it, and hopefully, you know, this first leg will only serve to whet the appetites of people in those other capitals who will go and see it from March on. So for anybody listening who is interested in in catching this show, um, as we said, go on to Iron Annie Cabaret on Instagram or junctiorearts.ie. Thanks so much, Luke, for, for joining me today. 100%. Thanks for having me. Thanks.